we enter into a new section here. The proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom of God. This is chapter 8, verses 1 through 56. The main point of this chapter and section is that the true disciple doesn't just give up everything to follow Jesus and be committed to him. But the true follower also proclaims who Jesus is to those who he comes encounter with or who she comes encounter with. Chapter 8, verse 1. Sometime afterward, he went on through the towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Jonah, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. Once again, he keeps making it very clear that all people are accepted into his new covenant community. He has gone to the centurion who crucifies people and has oppressed people through war and conquest and is a Roman Gentile. He's gone to the tax collectors who are Jews who have become traitors to Judaism by collecting taxes. He's gone to those that like, oh my gosh, God is so punishing them because they're blind and they're crippled and they've got leprosy. He's gone to them and made it very clear. He's gone to those who've had sinful pasts of prostitution and that kind of stuff. And now he's making it very clear that all women are accepted. Not just her, but all women. And not just in like, oh yeah, I'll heal you. Your sins are forgiven. Now go back to your life. But that they're actually his disciples and that they're going to follow him. And then not only that, he's going to allow himself to be taken care of by them. That's huge. Like even in our culture, many men have a hard time accepting the fact that their wife makes more money than them and that, that she will actually like pay most of the bills. But Jesus, as the son of God, the divine God of the universe, is allowing these women in this culture to actually pay the bills completely. And so they're following him. And so we have two people, classes of people. We have Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her for a long period of time. You don't get any more jacked up and rejected than that, than probably other than sexual morality. Other than that, how could Christ accept that kind of a woman? That means she's been in some dark, dark, dark places. And with that many demons in her, she's probably done some pretty dark things. But then on top of that, she has, he has a woman, Joanna, who's Herod's household manager. She's a business manager, regulating the house and the things of Herod's house. So she is not only a wealthy woman who has a, man, man, um, um, uh, a manager, but she's also in Herod's house. The, who is a traitor and a half-breed himself, according to them, because he's part Esau's descendants and part Jewish descendants. And then not only that, you have Susanna, who the fact that none of these husbands are mentioned, usually you're mentioned by, and the husband of, means that their husbands are dead or that they never married. Most likely they never married. Susanna is probably never married. Most scholars agree on that. But yet she has become so powerful and so wealthy that she's able, including with um, um, Joanna, to pay the bills for Jesus, to, to pay for the groceries and whatever else things need to be done. And so Jesus is not only giving these women social status, 
We often think that women weren't allowed to have any positions of authority ever in the ancient world, but that's not true. Okay, as we've gone back and and we're getting a better understanding of history and that kind of stuff, we have found that women, and there was their their own feminist movement during this time period as well, good and bad, um, but women were highly respected and had highly powerful positions of status. Like even the Muslim countries during 570 AD of Muhammad, he married a woman who was the manager and the head of a whole caravan of shipments, like the trucking industry. And so it was not uncommon for women to have positions of business power and political power. Usually the criteria that is set for women here is they're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to have power of making decisions over other people's lives. That typically things. So it was not uncommon for a woman to be a business manager, to have great power, to have great wealth, that kind of stuff, even to be like somewhat involved in politics and that kind of stuff. But where they kind of, where the Roman men drew the line was their ability to actually make decisions over the lives of other men who are powerful in business and all that kind of stuff. And so these women, yet Jesus is allowing them to gather around him. They would have seen this as scandalous. So now Jesus tells a parable. Chapter 8, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering, people were coming to Jesus from one town after another. And he spoke to them in a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell upon the path and was trampled on. And the wild birds devoured it. And other seeds fell on the rock, and when it came up, it withered because it had no moisture. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and they grew up with it and choked. But other seed fell on good soil and grew, and it produced a hundred times as much as grain, as said, he called out, the one who hears to hear had better listen. The one who has ears to hear had better listen. So Jesus tells a parable. We know this parable. This is like one of the most famous parables where Jesus is throwing seed out and some falls on good soil and some falls on rocks and thorns and thistles and all of the seeds, the life is choked out of it at some point in its growth, except for that that goes on good soil. Before we get to the explanation of the parable, we need to talk about the disciples' response because they're going to respond to this parable and then Jesus is going to tell them the meaning of the parable. So verse 9, Then Jesus' disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? They're confused. We've often been taught that Jesus talked in parables so it would make more sense to people, right? Storytelling is the highest form of teaching and helps people connect and understand it better than any other form of teaching. Yet, they're like, I don't know. What in the world are you talking about? What are the seeds? What are the different soils? We don't get it. He said to them, you have been given an opportunity to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are parables. So that although they see, they may not see. And although they hear, they may not understand. Now Jesus pretty much says, I tell this parable so that you won't understand it. I'm like, but why are you teaching Jesus? Now this is a very multi-level layered idea that's going here. He's quoting from Isaiah 6.3. In this sense, Matthew's parallel, Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 12, is more comprehensive. And I, in my opinion, it's way easier to figure out what Jesus is getting at by going to Matthew than it is to look at Luke. He quotes from Isaiah that basically says, 
Although they see, they may not see. And all they hear, they may not understand. Meaning, I'm teaching in such a way that they won't understand. And Isaiah 6, 9, the, pa- the context is this. Isaiah is brought into the presence of God. And he sees God sitting on the throne. And he is blown away by this image that he has never seen. And this is a more detailed image of God sitting on the throne than anybody has ever gotten in the First Testament up to Isaiah chapter 6. And so he's blown away by this. And he immediately follows. There's seraphim that are on fire flying around Jesus or God, Yahweh. Yahweh is sitting on the throne. His train fills the entire temple. The temple is his earth. So it's everywhere. And, and these angels are booming voices saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Isaiah's first response is to fall down on his knees and say, I am not worthy, woe is me. Now, woe is the word that you use at a funeral, meaning you're mourning death. What he's saying is, I'm dead. I'm a dead man because I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And this is my funeral because I've seen what I should not see. Now, at this point, God comes down and gets a coal and he cleanses his mouth. He cleanses his mouth because, one, he needs to be cleansed. Two, the mouth because he's going to be a prophet. He's going to speak the will of God to the people. So this is what needs to be cleansed. And three, the tongue is considered the most wicked thing in the body. He cleanses it. So then Jesus on the divine council, sorry, Jesus, Yahweh on the divine council of Yahweh says, who will go on our behalf? And preach to the people of Israel. And Isaiah says, me, me, me. Like, I'm going to be a prophet of God. And he says, what should I say, God? And God says that their cities are going to be laid to ruin. And they're going to be turned to ash. And the enemy is going to come and carry them off into exile. And da 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 And Isaiah is like, oh, <laughs> that's not fun to preach. He doesn't say that. But <laughs> and he says, okay, for how long? And God says, till they're all dead, because they will hear and never understand. They will see and never really truly see, and they will never accept it, and they will all go into exile. Like, wow, that's a depressing ministry. You mean I'm not going to see any fruit my entire life, and they're actually going to reject me even more as I preach this? And then Isaiah's response is, Yahweh is faithful and good, and I will go. Now, there are several places later where Isaiah's like, I quit, I'm done. But then he says, like Jeremiah, I'm compelled to go. Jeremiah actually like is more depressing, wants to quit more often. But he doesn't in the end. He doesn't actually quit. And so he's quoting from that passage. So he's basically speaking this generation saying, I speak in parables so that you don't understand. But then later in Matthew's parallel, he says, but I speak in parables so that you do understand. And you're like, okay, Jesus, which one is it? And the answer is both. Why did Jesus speak in parables? It's not just as simple as say, well, storytelling helps people understand concepts better. First, Jesus spoke in parables to blind, deafen, and harden those who made themselves antagonistic to Yahweh. Jesus quoting this passage to make it very clear that those who do not have the spiritual ears to truly hear God and understand what he's saying, nor do they have the spiritual eyes to see the works of God and to see how he's moving and working, they will reject it. They will reject everything. They will reject the words. They will reject the works of God like the Pharisees because all they can see is a threat to their power, an undermining of their lifestyle, or even um, a demonic person. 
or someone who's trying to seize their power. A threat to their power base. This is what he's saying. What then happens is, when you already harden yourself to God, and God begins to speak to you, you typically harden yourself even more. You probably have seen this with people in your family or people you've witnessed. Like you finally have probably gotten to the point where at first you're like, you shared the gospel all the time, you said that, but it just made them angry over time and it hardened them even more. And maybe they even got to the point where they didn't even want to come over to your house anymore, invite you over because they're just like, they're just going to talk about Jesus. And it just made things worse and harder even more. And you're like, well, how can that work? And what, what God is saying is, and I, is that this is revealing their true heart. One of the things that Jesus' teaching is going to do is reveal their true heart. Reveal where they really stand. When you start talking about God all the time, even somebody's like, oh yeah, I like Jesus and that kind of stuff. And they're playing the game. But you talk about all the time and you're really authentic and that. And after a while they're going like, okay, stop it with the Jesus thing. We all get it. And you're like, huh. That's not what somebody who, that's like saying, stop talking about your wife. Like, or, or your wife's saying, stop talking about me and to me all the time. I get it already. Like, she would never say that. You're like, wait a minute. Why, why, would, you, why would that bother you if we're both Christians? But for those who want nothing to do with it, it just reveals even more how much they're against it. And what it even does, it can even harden them even more for the judgment of God. Because God is a just judge. And we saw with the Canaanites that they were horrible. America looks like Disney World compared to the Canaanites during the time of Abraham. Yet God said, their sin is not yet bad enough for me to have the justice to just wipe them off the face of the earth. You're like, what God? What? You mean Sodom and Gomorrah? Like they were almost as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet that's not bad enough? And what God is saying is, I can't judge people truly until they've reached a certain point. And so your preaching is actually going to harden them and bring them to that judgment. It's going to reveal them for who they really are and where they really stand. No more can they really fake it. It increases the judgment against them. This can be seen in the Pharisees, who the plain truth of Jesus' teaching made them angrier. And they resisted him even more, revealing who they truly were and bringing their judgment upon him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the reason your loved one was getting angry and angrier is because God was getting ready to judge him and deal with him. I don't know. I'm just saying it is revealing their heart for what it really is. And there, we all know that there's, it's never too late. Look at Saul, okay? He was killing the Christians, and yet he converted to Christ. And, 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 and other people, um, we can go throughout history. So I'm not saying that it's too late for your loved one if they're getting harder and harder and angry and angry at your preaching. I'm just saying that this is one of the reasons for storytelling and parables is it makes it more obvious. It reveals their ignorance. In many cases, it would not be wise to preach to these kind of people. As when Jesus said to his disciples, do not throw your pearls before his pigs. On one hand, openly speaking plain truths to people risks being mocked or killed and then losing one's witness together. But one also must not hide the truth from them, assuming that they will not listen. So the use of metaphorical parable allows one to test the waters to see how the people respond. What Jesus is saying is, look, when you just come straight out and talk about Jesus, it just usually makes them angry. And probably by now, some of you realize, I just can't talk about Christ anymore. I know I want to, and I know they need it, but it's not beneficial to our relationship. And it's getting to the point where I can't see them anymore because they don't want anything to do with me anymore. So if I back off, then at least we can have a relationship, and then maybe the Holy Spirit can work, and then maybe one day 
the, the ground will be fertile again. And that's what parables do. If you speak this, you could drive a wedge between them and you. If you speak it constantly too much, you could even bring mockery and hate towards you, which will make it harder for you to go to other people who need to hear you. So when Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine, he's not saying they're all pigs and they don't deserve the gospel, and I don't want them to be saved. What he's saying is, don't waste your time with them right now. They're not ready yet. And all you're going to do is make the judgment worse for them, because the more they know, the more they reject the greater judgment. All you're going to do is make them ruin your relationship with them and ruin the soil that you could ever have with them one day. And then the other thing you might do is they will mock you so much openly that you'll lose audiences with other people around you that you could have had if they hadn't been mocking you and attacking you publicly and open all the time. Don't waste your time with these kind of people. However, God is also going to make it very clear, don't stop praying. And you have to trust God that when their heart is right for the seed, then he will either bring you back into their life at that point and they will ask you to tell them or he'll make it very clear now or he'll bring somebody else in their life because God's desire is none shall perish. And you have to trust him in that. So what parables does is it allows you to test the waters. It allows you to speak in metaphors. And if they begin to respond in an angry kind of way, you realize, okay, they're not ready for this. But at the same time, I haven't become very open and obvious about what I'm about, which means that they're not turning on me completely and other people aren't going after me. That's the first reason that Jesus spoke in parables, was to test the waters and reveal people for who they are without the openness. The second is Jesus spoke in parables for the converse reason of revealing things hidden in Scripture. Matthew 13, 34 through 35 goes on, and he quotes Psalm 20, 78 here in Psalm 78. The psalmist goes through history of Israel to point out the things about their history that had missed in their readings. The parables forced people to see things that they did not see earlier because they were blinded by their preconceived ideas or shaded perceptions, causing them to misread the text. These truths were already there, but people did not want to see them. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. Jesus is saying, Converse, I do speak in parables so that you will get it. But not just because storytelling helps make ideas more prevalent to people, but rather the stories help bring out the truths that were always there. We know that we've read the First Testament multiple times and we're like, we either didn't get what God was trying to teach us, or we were got only one or two layers and then years later you're like oh my gosh there's like even more there how did i never see that and then years later oh my gosh there's even more there how did i and so what jesus is saying is that there's been truths in god's word for years and years and years but you're missing them because you're preconceived ideas your culture has forced you in a certain interpretation and a certain way of thinking. Your preconceived ideas about who God is and what the world is and who you are and what other people are are only allowing you to see it in one way or no way at all. What a parable does is it forces you out of your box to see it from a different angle. This is one of the purposes of sci-fi. I know some people in here probably love sci-fi and other people are like, I hate sci-fi. I hate fantasy. But one of the reasons that sci-fi and fantasy is so popular with a lot of people, other than just the world of imagination, but because you can deal with very difficult topics of racism and all kinds of stuff without people ever really knowing it. 
Like, some of you are very familiar. Like, you go off to an alien world, right? And you deal with one group of aliens and another group of aliens hating each other and going at war. And you can make a lot of social commentary about why that's wrong and how it works. And nobody's thinking black and white people or white and Asians or Asians and blacks or any of those kind of racisms that you can have. They're not thinking about that. And so what they're thinking is like blue alien and green alien. Okay, or in X-Men, when you've got a whole bunch of mutant people that are being outcast and ostracized by the non-mutant people, it allows you to say a lot of things about racism that a lot of people have never been willing to listen to because either they think you're wrong for saying racism is wrong, or they're like, that's not me, I'm not like that. But what it allows you to do is talk about all these issues, social, political, cultural, all this kind of stuff, and then you can be like, well, oh, that's, that's kind of like you. And they're like, Oh, now that you put it that way. And that's what Jesus speaks in parables for. For those who really truly are seeking God, who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, who want to have God speak in their life, it allows them to break through preconceived social constructs. It allows them to see that you are the blue alien who was doing those things to the green aliens. Okay, It allows you, you are the Jew who is excommunicating the Gentiles and not willing to go to them. And so this is the point that he's making with the parables is that yes, it is to harden people, make it harder to understand so that one, you don't get openly mocked in your ministry destroyed and two, it reveals them for who they really are. And yes, it is for those who want to understand because to them is given the secrets of the kingdom of God because they want to know them and allows them to go deeper because no matter how much you're like, God, please teach me, I want to learn. You go to the Bible and you're like, well, that's not me. Right? Until you're like, speak to me in a different way, Holy Spirit. And then you're like, oh. The parables work on two different levels, depending whether you have eyes and ears or not. Does that make sense? And this is the point that Jesus is making. To them, the Pharisees, it's going to harden them and judge them even more. To you, you begin the secrets. However, this is only year one of our ministry, so you still don't get it, so I'll give you a little bit of explanation. The parable means this. The seed is the word of God, and those along the path are the ones who have heard it. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they, are not, they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing fall away. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who hear, but they go on their way and are choked by the worries and the riches of pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for the seed that landed on the good soil, they are the ones who, after hearing the word, cling to it, and with an honest and good heart, bear fruit with steadfast endurance. This is not exactly a parable of how one gets saved. It's not really exactly a parable of whether they're true Christians or not. Because in some ways you could say, oh, the, the seed was thrown in the one soil and they did not believe and they were not saved. And you're like, well, right there, it's, it's about salvation. Well, then the next one says, but they believed for a while. And the next one says they actually began to grow. They believed and grow and then were choked out. You're like, okay, was well, this saying you can lose your salvation? Da, 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 da. No, 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 no. That's not the point of the parable. 
Parables only work on certain levels. They're not exhaustive total theological statements on the whole entirety of faith and salvation. This parable is not interested in how one becomes saved. This parable is about the effectiveness of those who claim that they believe. And what God is saying here is it doesn't really matter whether you have heard and been given the seed. It doesn't even really matter whether you believe. It doesn't even really matter if you begin to grow. What matters is, in Paul's language, that you finish the race, that you're effective, that you produce fruit. That's what Jesus is really interested in. It's not about salvation or not. Don't read into this and, and, and determine whether you can lose your salvation or not, or this is just about people who are saved, and this is not about people who are saved. What? No, 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 no. This is about producing fruit. That's the main point of the parable. It's your effectiveness. It's not how do I get in the kingdom of God. It's not whether I'm in the kingdom of God. It's what does it mean to be effective in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is those who are truly effective are the ones who persevere for the entire length of their growth and do not give up. They're not choked out. They're not stifled. Nothing is stolen from them. And they produce fruit. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. The question, a lot of times what we should be asking is not whether we're saved or not, but is there fruit in my life? Now, I'm not saying you should never ask that question, but I'm just saying we end often in there, but we can get spun up really well because at the end it was like, well, maybe you are saved. But if there's no fruit in your life, then that's not God's ideal. He didn't save you from hell, period, the end. He saved you to the kingdom of God to do his works and to produce fruit and to expand it and to have life with him and a relationship with him and that kind of stuff. And so the question we should be evaluating is our fruit, our fruit. And that's the point of this parable. And why, does he, why is this so important for the disciples at this point? Because their entire life, the Pharisees have been the teachers. The Pharisees are the ones that they admire. The Pharisees are the ones that, that they're, they're the teachers. They're the ones I'm supposed to like, be like. In fact, Peter and Paul and all them, or Peter and Paul, Peter and James and John and all them probably even applied for discipleship under some of these with the rabbis. And, and right now, Jesus is, they're going head to head. And if you have this person like, it's, it's kind of like this. I really, really like N.T. Wright and what he has to say. I think he's absolutely phenomenal. I really like D.A. Carson and what he has to say. I, there's nothing that I've ever disagreed with D.A. Carson on. Well, one thing. And, and I really like these two men of God incredibly. I think they're both absolutely... D.A. Carson has a mind for the scriptures like you would not believe. And N.T. Wright has a mind for not just following the status quo and what we've always believed about the scripture. And they're both phenomenal thinkers. But D.A. Carson doesn't like N.T. Wright. He's made it very clear that he thinks he's out of bounds in a lot of ways. And that's the one thing I don't agree with D.A. Carson on. And it's hard. In the very beginning of my life, when I hadn't really been rooted in myself in Scripture, I was like, I like him and I like him, but they don't like each other. So am I supposed to hate one and not the other? Like, what do I do? But as I got older and more mature, I realized, well, we're all flawed. We all have mistakes. And I can see why D.A. Carson thinks about N.T. Wright. And I can see why N.T. Wright is kind of like, eh. 
But at the same time, like, I'm not just following N.T. Wright. I'm reading lots of things and studying lots of people, and I'm not just pigeonholed into this one guy. And I think D.A. Carson is talking about N.T. Wright in a way because most people are just like, oh, N.T. Wright, and that's all they read. And that I can see could be very dangerous, no matter who you are, where I'm more well-rounded, and I'm not like, patting myself on the back over that, but that's just that's what I love. That's what I'm good at. And that's what I'm passionate about, reading and research in the Bible. For me, it might be different to embrace both than maybe for somebody else. I don't know. I don't I really feel but all I know is this is kind of how the Pharisees the disciples feel. The difference is like Jesus isn't just questioning some of the beliefs of the Pharisees or how they're saying it. He's just straight going for their necks. And the Pharisees are straight going the next of Jesus. And they don't look like two fellow believers that have differing opinions. Maybe in the beginning, but they're really beginning to look like having two different religions. And can you imagine being a, a, a disciple of Jesus at that moment? For 30-something years, 40-something years of your life, maybe. The Pharisees have been the sole source of the authority of God and the teaching of God. And now this new guy comes up. And yeah, he's new, but you can't deny the things he's doing and how he's talking. And, and they don't like each other. They, I mean, Jesus loves them, but they don't like each other. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is trying to help them understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, it's time to stop looking at their position and where they have been and that they've had a powerful influence in your life and to start looking at the fruit. What fruit are you seeing from my ministry? And what fruit are you seeing from the Pharisees' ministry? They are divisive. I am not. The only people that are, that are being divide, or being cut off are the people who don't like me. But I'm not cutting them off. I went to their home. Look at their fruit. And then he turns to them and says, and then the same is of you too. You'll be known by your fruit. And your fruit is who you follow. And what you do with the word of God. And this is the point that he's making. This is why this parable comes at this moment, is to get them to see what's really going on around them. And that it's not just about this person has authority and they're the ones who speak the word of God, but what fruit does God want us to actually have in our life? What does it look like to be the kingdom of God? Then he goes on. No one lights a lamp and then covers it with a jar and puts it under a bed but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in can see the light. For nothing is hidden that will be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be known and brought to light. So listen carefully for whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Look, nobody takes lights and hides them, but that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're keeping it from the women. They're keeping it from the tax collectors. They're keeping it from the Gentiles. They're keeping it from the sick and the poor. Who does that? Who doesn't let their light shine for all people? Look at me. I am the light of the world. And I'm coming in and I'm shining to everybody. And everybody's seeing it. And they're, and they're not just seeing me. Like, Ooh, pretty. They're seeing it and taking it in. And life is being produced. They're growing. They're being healed. Who, who has the Pharisees healed and grown? They're doing what people don't logically do. Hide lights. You don't do that either. So I tell you, to those who have been given, if they waste it and don't do it, or they hoard it, or they keep it from them, they'll be taken away from them. 
But for you, if you handle the light in the right way, I will give you more light. I'll give you more light. 